Welcome back to season two of the Business Culture Podcast, a platform to learn through the power of context and story. It's great to be back with you. This season is all about impact. I'll be chatting to impact makers across industries and geographies to understand how they have made true impact on their customers, colleagues, and communities. In this episode, I once again had the pleasure of chatting with Chris Bentley, a familiar face and voice to the golf and club industry. Chris is a futurist, somebody who can see things before it becomes a reality in the greater society. In this episode, we unpacked the importance of running a club like a business rather than a club. Chris, together with his capable team at Royal Johannesburg and Kensington, have and continue to build a business which is diversifying in revenue streams and thereby de-risking itself in the process. Let's get into the interview. I'd be interested to know from your side, you know, how would you define the difference between running a club as a club and running a club more as a business? Is there any definition or anything that for you kind of provides some kind of insight or point of departure on, on the difference between those two? Every golf club is a, is a business. Um, I think that's first and foremost, you know. Um, but there's quite an, an arctic way of of you know, the history of how golf clubs have worked in the past and what direction they're going to in the future. I think there's, you know, quite a few fundamental discussions to be had around, you know, what the best structure is for golf. And I'm going to start in reverse by saying some of the best golf clubs in the world are run by committees. Okay, so so let me say that up front. Um, but I think, uh, I think at many golf clubs across South Africa specifically, and obviously I'm generalizing, but, you know, from a efficiency perspective, um, I think a lot of golf clubs are starting to learn that, you know, if they want to progress and they want to innovate, they need to leave it up to the professionals. And what I mean by that is that, you know, committee structures and guys serving on boards or, or committees in office, you know, the change is so quick. And I think your club manager today is a very different person to the club manager, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. Um, club managers today are certified, qualified. Um, they're professionals at what they do. And I think they need to be given the responsibility. And I think the fundamental um, kind of adaption that's happening now is that boards are boards and committees are seeing that they the biggest impact they can have is with good governance and strategy and let the professional get on with the job. You know, guys that are sitting on committees, uh, I take my hats off to them and they are professionals in their fields and, and they qualified in their fields. Um, whereas, and, and now the, the club manager, he's qualified in his field. And so the kind of trust and responsibility is shifting a lot. Um, but you still have to have that, you know, that, good governance structure um, that can drive vision and uh, develop master plans, essentially. But I think from an execution perspective, specifically front of house operations, it's got to be left to the guy that's doing it day to day. And I think slowly but surely, um, like you said, I think Rawls been a catalyst for that example. And slowly but surely, a lot of clubs are starting to adapt. I had a call this week from a golf club in Joburg saying, please, can you send us your constitution? We want to we want to change 
to a board structure uh, where there's more responsibility on the on the club manager. Mm. I mean, essentially, the club manager is the only guy that can get arrested. So why shouldn't there be? It's um it's a great starting into this into this conversation and and I guess it, it leads quite nicely into the next question, which is you were a big part of the change at Royal in terms of, of shifting from one to the other. At the outset, it, it probably seems like quite a, you know, the, the typical sort of how do you how do you eat an elephant kind of scenario. What was your you know, if you could give give listeners an advice or any advice into how you start that process or how you kind of move to that process, what was it for you that that worked? How, how did you get that process going in terms of the shift? Well, I think, um, look, when I started at Royal in 2013, um, you know, I didn't have too much to lose. I was young and hungry and I wanted to prove a lot of people wrong that I could do the job. And I think... Um, so, so, you know, it does take a lot of guts and people don't like change. So, but, you know, there's a, there's a quote from a guy called Warren Bennis from the Leadership Institute of California. And he's, he, he's famous for saying in life, change is inevitable, but in business, change is vital. And it takes a lot of strategic clarity and um, you've got to take people on a journey to get their buy-in. Um, my chairman at the time was a guy called Gordon Hodges, very successful businessman who um, specialized in acquisitions and mergers and things like that. And um, he taught me that the most important thing about a meeting is the meeting before the meeting and taking people on that journey with you and building that vision of why this is the right way to go. And, it, you know, obviously it needs to appeal to the majority was key. And so you know, we built this this vision of how it should work. And I think the easiest question to ask yourself is, if this was my business, would I set it up with X amount of committees? Is this the best way to run my business? And I think if you ask 99% of people out there, nobody would ever set up their golf club um, in a committee structure. So, yeah, you know, I think fundamental change in the foundations of how the business is structured leads to opportunities, uh, specifically in culture, in building people, um, efficiency. And I think once you have those foundations and the supporting structure, um, I think what it leads to is, is passion and it enables you to be empathetic and staff start feeling more valued and they have the support and the responsibility, essentially. Um, but yeah, it comes down to strategic clarity and getting everybody's buy-in and and making sure that the majority believe that that's the best way forward, um, you know, for growth and success. And and I think you know the one point that that strikes me as you as you talk about that is is the importance of decisiveness. You know, I think in any business in any business environment, the more decisive um, the leadership is able to be, the more things can you know we can create momentum and have a bias towards action, et cetera, et cetera. Do you feel that that's one of the the most important uh, pluses or strengths of running it as a business rather than a club, or are there other things that that you feel you know um, are also strengths of of running it more like a business? You know, is is decisiveness a big part of that? Yeah, I think um, you have to be decisive, and you have to have buy-in, and you have to have different ideas, and you've got to formulate what you believe is going to be in the best interests of um 
you know, the club's growth and retention and success. Um, I think one of the big things is, you know, going about things with tact. And Winston Churchill said that tact is the ability to tell somebody to go to hell um, in a way where they look forward to the trip, you know? I love that. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and so, you know, I'm certainly not an expert at what I do, but this is what I'm trained to do. And I think formulating ideas with successful businessmen um, that are part of the club, that are, are there to assist you along the way, I think getting that buy-in and their experience um, really does help you formulate the best vision for the, for the future. And I think essentially it allows you to develop a master plan that lives beyond the term in office, if I can put it that way. And so, you know, change doesn't happen overnight. It takes, it takes time, it takes dedication, and it takes buy-in. And I think, you know, the, the plans that we're busy rolling out now at Royal um, are big, it's, it's big stuff. And we're only seeing that come through five years later, you know, mm. and the, the decisions we took in 2015, 2016, that's what we're rolling out now. So these things take time. And um, like I said, it's about taking everybody on that journey and um, making sure that everybody knows what their responsibility is. You've, you've spoken a lot about change so far. And I guess, you know, one of the, the most difficult things with change is that they say it's, it's, it's hard in the beginning, messy in the middle, but, but beautiful at the end. I've got no doubt that you've faced quite a few uh, challenges, setbacks, et cetera, et cetera, in this uh, you know, significant change in the club. What is some advice that you can give you know, to people that are perhaps not as far along the journey as you are in, in changing that structure and, and how to be, I suppose, a bit more resilient to not get knocked off the path because there's a little bit of obstruction or whatever the case might be? Well, I think, I think with any change, there's going to be adversity. So if you expect that there will be adversity, um, you'll be a lot more prepared for it. And like the saying goes, through every storm, there is a rainbow. And we have to go through that adversity to be successful and stress test ourselves, our vision, um, the management structure. You need to stress test everything at every corner. Um, and I think, like I said, you know, that's how you end up coming out with the best results. Um, and I think the easiest way to do that is to paint the vision. You know, what do people want? And I remember listening to a podcast a couple of months ago you did with um, our good friend, Mike Leomais. And he said, don't, don't treat people um, that treat people the way they want to be treated, you know, and the same principle applies to business. I think, I think give people what they want and paint that vision. And again, you know, I think if you accept early on that you will never get a hundred percent buy-in and you start trying to, you know, convince people or show people that we want to do what's best for the majority. And you have a target of, let's say 80%. If you satisfy 80%, you're doing pretty well. And so you need to know upfront there's going to be adversity with any change. People don't like change. They don't want to change until they see the change happening and they go, this is pretty cool, you know? And so um, they will change at a later point once they start enjoying the new amenities, the new structure, the more efficient way of doing things. And yeah, um, you just got to paint that vision and, and, and trust that the process that you go through 
will will take you there. I think one of the other key key points um, for the listeners is that you know we live in this age even more so today with with technology and people aren't really talking to each other anymore. Everything's on a on a keypad and you know I, I I've taken a, a personal policy that if I receive a complaint. Um, first thing I do is phone and ask when we can have coffee. All these days, you know, when can we meet on Zoom? Because it's just so much easier to to connect mm. on a on a personal level to overcome concerns, challenges, to agree to disagree, even you know. But that does get you one step closer to the vision. Mm. I think what you what you're alluding to there as well, you know, it's it's such a good principle throughout business is is listening with the intent to understand, not just the intent to to respond. And I think the authenticity that comes with that, um, you know, taking of your time to spend with that person, and uh, just you know, understanding a little bit deeper as to what the the true nature of the complaint is, um, or, or, or the or the dissatisfaction for that matter is it goes so much further than just trying to solve that individual problem. Um, it's, it's, it's a great lesson, I think, for us all because, you know, we, I, I think we all fall into this trap of sometimes not paying enough time or attention to, to truly listening uh, consciously. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, context is such a big thing these days. Um, and while well, it has been, you know, forever. And once you, you know, there's always a reason behind something. And once you get in, get yourself into a position where you can explain where you're coming from, um, what your objectives were, why you took those decisions, and and almost, you know, transparently take that person on, person on your journey. Um, you know, that I often find that it's very seldom that by the end of explaining something to somebody, whether it's, uh, you know, billion rand development or an issue with a pitch mark, um, by the end of it, you, you, you know, you're on the same page or at least you, you understand, um, why those decisions were taken. And, and if we talking about context there, you know, you guys, as you've alluded to, have been on a pretty special journey since 15, 16, in terms of, of the change with Royal, um, in terms of learning from context, could, could you give us some insights into, you know, the plans and what's been happening there and perhaps, you know, some of the lessons that you've learned, you know, since then up until now? Sure. Um, I, I hardly know where to start. It's been such an incredible journey um, at Royal. You know, we, we started at a point in 2013 where there was lots of adversity, a lot of unhappy members, no vision, uh, you know, a Arctic structure within the club. And, um, you know, we just slowly took it in chunks. And by 2017, we were achieving beyond expectations. Um, you know, the new, the renovated East course and the master plan in terms of our property developments, which we're currently rolling out. Everything's just coming together beyond what we planned, you know, from receiving numerous world golf awards and you know our team at Royal coming together like a family and when I say the team at Royal I referred to the the staff and the management and the impact that their kind of passion um, has on the membership kind of you know they're forced into this family culture at the club and so I think you know we've 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 overcome a lot 
and we've learned a lot along the way. We're learning every single day, but we've got the, the trust, guidance, and support of the membership. And I think once you get that, it really does make things so much easier. Um, once, you know, if you've got over a thousand members buying into the vision and living the brand, instead of moaning about the pitch marks and, you know, whatever, it really makes a big difference. And from an efficiency perspective and, a, and delivering beyond expectations, it's just, it's win-win. And mm. that vision becomes a reality far quicker. Yeah. You, you, um, I think you've done a wonderful job of, of the nature and the delivery mechanism of how you communicate with your members. In other words, keeping them in the know, transparency, et cetera, et cetera. Could you, I mean, for the sake again of the listeners and, and perhaps some, some guidance along that front is how, how do you believe one is best, one best communicates with a member base like yours? What are some of the principles or approaches that, and, and somewhat off the cuff this question, but is there anything that you can um, allude to or provide that, that gives insight into how you go about your communication with your members? So I think, I mean, you're touching on a point here that is absolutely critical for club managers specifically um, and teaching pros and golf directors. You've got to be communicating. And I think there's a couple different ways to communicate um, effectively and you've got to use every opportunity from a platform perspective. Um, nothing beats face-to-face, -face, number one, whether we're in a pandemic or not, uh, whether there's restrictions or not. And so front, front of house communication is, is absolutely number one, in, in my opinion. And, you know, I set up my, my diary weekly to block off time to spend front of house. Um, and, you know, on a Saturday, I don't even open my office. I, I don't come upstairs. I am front of house on the patio, on the golf course. And I'm just saying hi and how are you and how's your family? And, you know, just um, chatting to the guys. And often that's when I get, you know, the best questions. Um, and it's, it can be simple stuff that somebody's not willing to take the time to send an email about or set up an appointment. Um, but I think those, that type of feedback on the ground, just, you know, simple things. Why don't you have um, Kilkenny on tap? You know, there's 15 of us that would love that on tap. Oh, great. Jeez. You know, he wouldn't have taken the time to, you know, send you an email on it, but now that mm -hmm. he's seen you, you get that feedback. Whereas if you're not there, you'll never receive that. And so I, I find that front of house, let's call it PR, is absolute key from a communication perspective. And then I look and say, you know, what communication would I like to receive? You know, at the moment I get, you know, some places send out a weekly newsletter. Um, some places send out a YouTube video every single day from the CEO, you know, and I find it a little bit too much, to be honest. I think um, a lot of people are over-communicating and almost for the sake of it, you know, just to say I've done it and it's, you know, whatever. So I look at it and I say a really good newsletter once a month with real content in it that's authentic. Uh, we've taken the time to develop in a, develop that communication in a very professional manner and it paints the whole picture of, what's happened throughout the month. Um, I find that that's got a higher open rate uh, versus a weekly communication. And you've got time to plan for it, you know, from, you know, quality of marketing, communication, all that kind of thing. Um, 
I find that the open rates are better. I find that uh, the communication we receive back is is far more positive and appreciative for the time and effort we put in versus you know your your kind of weekly stuff. And then obviously you've got your day to day social media. Um, you know how much do you want to put out there? Um, what is the tactical approach? And ultimately, when it comes to communication, what are you trying to achieve? Why do it? You need to ask yourself, what are the objectives here? You know, do I want to, am I just sending something out for sending it so that we are seen to be doing what everybody else is doing? Or do what is the actual purpose? And I ask my team all the time, you know, if we do this, why are we doing it? You know, what are we trying to achieve here? And then in two weeks time, let's ask ourselves, did it work? And did we, did we actually accomplish what we mm-hmm. set out to communicate? I think you've, I think it's the best answer I've heard in a long time. And the way that I sum it up in my head is, is um, we don't communicate for reputation management. We communicate to transfer meaning or to, to evoke uh, conscious consideration, if that makes sense. It's, it's not about just trying to manage a reputation. It's uh, you want people to be conscious when they're reading that uh, it must mean something to them. And sometimes, as you so well said, less is more. Um, it's not a, you know, I don't know about you, but cheap is that with our phones and everything these days, we're so distracted by so much white noise that sometimes it's the people who communicate less, but more intent, intentively that we actually listen to. Absolutely. And I think taking the opportunity to kind of, you know, we live in the most illogical world at the moment. It was illogical before the pandemic and it's illogical today. Um, and I think, not losing sight of you know that human connection um and what humans are made up of in terms of look smell hear feel all those all those elements of what triggers us you know uh leveraging those opportunities i you know i don't care what anybody says when i'm smiling behind my mask they can't see it but they can feel it and those opportunities we can't forget about those opportunities and what makes us react in certain ways to things? You, you've started to answer the, 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 my next question really well, actually, is I've always believed that you've had a very good sense of um, what represents value to, to the contemporary member, the, the, the member of today, in the sense that you know, I think that what is perceived as value today is, is evolving, it's changing. Do you, <laughs> I mean, we could talk about this subject for the entire day, but um, Let's do it. To, maybe, to maybe just scratch the surface, I suppose. Um, how, how do you about, go about defining what, or even just starting to define what, what value looks like today from a membership perspective? I think, I think there's a couple of things. Um, a lot like Jeff Claus, I don't believe in discounts and things like that. I believe in adding value. And delivering beyond expectation. You know, when when we have patrons come through the door, we have to deliver beyond what they believe they're going to receive when they come come to Royal Johannesburg and Kensington. And we take that approach with anything and everything we do, whether it's around a golf on a Friday, whether it is a special resolution in AGM, um, we have to deliver beyond expectation. And I think when you take that approach, you're giving people far more value than what they thought they were purchasing. And I've found that that kind of resonates with 
um, membership retention, membership growth, and the ultimate way to market your business being word of mouth. You know, other members then go to their mates and they say, you don't understand. You've got to join Royal Johannesburg and Kensington Golf Club. The golf course is not great. It is beyond great. It's exceptional. And the pandemic's taught me one thing about this. When, when we were in hard lockdown last March, you know, we came through to the club quite a bit from a, a maintenance perspective. And, you know, when you walk in these doors and there's no people here and you're out on the course and there's nobody there, it shows you exactly what this facility is worth. It's worth nothing without people. And everything that we do is about people. Uh, people buy from people. People have to feel the value. And I think that goes beyond a price tag. And that's the kind of management approach we take. And it's, it's not just a, um, a day-to-day management approach, but it's, it's what we want to do. We want to make people happy. And I think that value um, in terms of trying to make people happy every single day, that comes across. And in turn, it makes them feel valued no matter what the prices are. Mm. I, I, it's not hard to understand why um, you have been successful as a as a leader in, in the industry in terms of the fact of how you see value because every time I speak to you about this you 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 always come back to the human the the, the person the, the what what is of value to a person not as of what is of value to a, to initially a customer and it's it's such a powerful uh, viewpoint because when you're in touch with the person you're in touch with how people change and you know what i always find interesting chris is that you what i call the mvp minimum viable product if if you go to a a random golf course on a you know on a quiet monday or whatever the case is the value that you receive on that day when there's no golf day on when there's no special event or anything like that just the mvp the minimal viable product is is so interesting to witness across the clubs in south africa because you know it's the green fee for the most part often doesn't differ too much it might a little bit but you know the the cost isn't changing what does the value look like and i think the clubs that are really you know creating that strong minimal viable product are the ones that are building great memberships it's not just about the member days or the, the big days of the club it's it's about the average day and what people get out of those days. And I think you guys have, you know, whenever I come to your club, there's always that that base level of um, forthcomingness from staff that makes you remind you why you're a member of the club. Well, I, I mean, you're touching on an important point here because just as important as it is to develop a vision that the members buy into, you've got to be doing that with your staff they need to know what their purpose is you know um why are they cutting the grass why are they you know filling the the bucket on number one with hot water and not cold water in winter they need to understand why we do things you know in the second you spending time with your team explaining to them this is where we want to be in five years time this is why we're building gyms and restaurants and you know, we're trying to attract the entire family here and selling the vision to your staff and building the vision with your staff before it even gets to the members. You know, let them believe that they are completely in the movie and um, they have a serious part to play in the success of, of driving strategy. 
And I think what's also um, another point that I wanted to touch on, even though this isn't a, an empathetic view towards people, but it is important for management to explain to the member, to the patron, that we are trying to take the financial burden away from you. We're trying to give you more and we're trying to take the financial burden off you. And the, again, you know, this was all pre-pandemic strategy. And what I mean by that is saying, we understand the supply and demand issues in golf, even though it's thriving through the pandemic. My view is that it will normalize at some point and your business model is still going to be what it was, right? Um, you have to have a strategy of saying, how am I going to generate new revenue that was never there before? Um, I think one of the best things that's happened to us in the, in the pandemic was what we were forced to do to replace lost revenue, specifically in food and beverage and hospitality, no functions, no events. And we were forced to create this curbside delivery service, you know, home delivery meals. How do we do it? How does it work? Um, what's the safest way to get this thing done? But what's happening now is, you know, as we kind of come out of these lockdowns, our curbside delivery service has been obviously supported well by the members, but it's a new revenue stream. We're going to continue with that inevitably. And you look at what we're doing in property, that is annuity income in perpetuity. So when we before we collect subscriptions at the beginning of the year, we are collecting money from property now that supplements those subscriptions. You know, um, 20 years ago, there was joining fees. Those things are gone now. There's no such thing as a joining fee anymore. Um, and you need to supplement that stuff. CapEx is a serious issue within clubs. Um, your 3,500 mower that you're buying in, you know, 2010, it's almost double the price, including CPI. Um, the import duties, et cetera, et cetera. You know, those things are far more expensive than they used to be. And people's expectations are far higher than they used to be. And they want it to be less money. So let's give the people what they want. Let's create new revenue streams. Let's bring the entire family in. We need to take care of our CapEx. We need to get everything done without putting more financial burden onto the members. Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, there's that old saying of sweating the asset or however many or however you want to define it. But your 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 view on it speaks into this notion of, of, of creating a business rather than a club or, or running it as a, as a business. The asset of space is something which golf clubs have always been blessed with. And yet so few have really leveraged the true benefit of space. And as space becomes more and more desired, it becomes more and more of an asset that one can leverage. I would, I would say, you know, not every club is the same and not every club can, can, can generate the same types of revenue streams. But do you have any any advice, I guess, in how a club can start considering what revenue streams might be best for them? Is is it is there a methodology, or was it very much individual to to every different club? Um, I think I think there's some there's some individualism in terms of the clubs, but I think in general, um, you know, you listen to guys like Martin Slumbers at the RNA. The RNA's sole strategy. Um, is to bring more women into the game of golf, okay? And our sole strategy is for our members to bring the entire family to the club. You know, it's, it's, it's far more than just golf, you know? So whether that's a running trail 
or you're building a lodge down the first hand side of number one um, or you're building restaurants or gym or whatever, you need to create amenities to cater for the entire family because instead of, you know, one beer, it's now three drinks and a massage and a gym session and a gym membership and an apartment. And, you know, so it all kind of, um, you know, starts tying together. But if we can attract a member to bring the entire family here and have amenities for them, I, it sounds to me like that's a pretty good investment. Um, we plan that in the next couple of years, um, most likely our membership will close because if members start bringing their entire family here, we, we won't have the, the capacity um, to take in additional patrons. And so starting with your current customer, I think, I think that's where it starts. It's not, it's not about, oh, let's go find new business. I think it starts with your current member, their attention, and how do you give them what they want? And how do you attract them to bring their entire family into the club? And I think that's what's worked reasonably well for us. Um, you know, we, we still in, we're still in the construction phase of a, lot of, of a lot of our stuff. But by the end of this year, we will, um, we will cement being a full-on family club where it's far more than just golf. And then by mid next year, we will have 200 residents living um, on the estate. And I think from a all encompassing perspective, that's where we want to be. I, I can't tell you how much that speaks to me as a, as a father of two young kids and someone who often feels, uh, I hope my wife isn't listening to this, but feels guilty about going and playing golf, uh, especially on a weekend. The, optimum ideal situation is why remove or separate golf from family why not have golf with family in, in, in exactly what you've alluded to and yeah it's, it's great to see that the leaders of the industry are, are going that way because you know if you create an, an immersive environment like that you don't just uh, m make the the golfer happy you make the family happy and you you increase the basket size as a result of that increased value which i think is as i understand it what you guys are doing Absolutely. You know, there's always going to be challenges. There's always going to be risks. And I think what we've done is we've, we've kind of taken a piece of paper and said, what are all the risks that face us? Okay. From a sustainability perspective, a CapEx perspective, et cetera. And, you know, the, the obvious things, ESKIM, massive risk to a golf course, right? How do we take that risk, turn it into, um, an opportunity. How do we do that? And, you know, so we're doing things like we're saying, you know, Eskom is a serious risk because if we can't turn our pump stations on, we can't water the greens. But what's the opportunity within something like that? Moving to electric machinery, you save a million rand a year on fuel. You know, so if you can get your workshop, your pump stations onto a, and I'm di digressing a little bit here, but if you get that stuff onto solar, on a zero capital basis at a cheaper monthly rate. And you can then adapt into, you know, that Tesla model and save a million rand a year. Surely that, that is um, a solution to a risk, you know? And I think that's the approach we take with everything. You know, how, these are the 150 risks facing us from national level to, you know, on the ground. And what are the opportunities? How do we flip this thing on its head? Yeah, I think that uh, I know you're giving a talk quite soon on on risk mitigation. Uh, 
which I think is so so great to to see that you're taking the lead with that. But um, at the same time, it's again, it's that old thing about don't wait for the risk to become a reality. Wait, you know, do something about it uh, in the here and now. I think that's a huge differentiator between the the leaders who who create environments that are robust versus those who are constantly reactive. Um, so so yeah, Chris, it's 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 fantastic to I think just to to scratch the surface of your thinking. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's that spark that many people need to 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 start that process because you know it's it's not about it's it's like the old saying I always say you know the hardest part is actually putting on your running shoes it's not going for the run it's actually just getting getting the running shoes on and then once you're on the road it's it's actually okay um, but I think the catalyst or, or whatever it is the inspiration is often the hardest part so um, I think it's hugely valuable I know that you're a a massive golfer as well and and I can't let you go I can't let you go anywhere without um our golfing segment which is our quick fire questions and it, it is always interesting um contrasting someone like yourself to uh, a previous guest like dale hayes who who perhaps has uh some of the more legacy uh opinions or um preferences when it comes to to the golfing world so i've got a i've got seven or so quick fire questions here which i'm going to throw your way and the whole idea here is that you give the, the answer as quickly as possible with as little consideration and, and really whatever comes to mind the quickest. So without further ado, first question is, uh, the next South African to win a major championship? Dylan Fratelli. Wow. Okay, you can only play one of the other, uh, sorry, you can only play one or the other for the rest of your life, Parkland or Lynx? Parkland. No surprises there. The most impactful, influential golf course in the world, in your opinion? Augusta National. What's bigger, the Open or the Masters? Masters. You can either give, you can either drive it like Bryson or putt it like Brad Faxon. <laughs> Faxon. Who's the goat, Tiger or Jack? Tiger Woods because of commercial. <laughs> There's the businessman right there. <laughs> the best run tournament you've ever been involved in or attended? The Masters. And last but not least, your all-time football, including yourself, and they can be dead or alive. Mm, my dad, my son, and Nelson Mandela. Man, I don't think that's that's that is not one that I, I saw coming, but certainly I can understand why you, you would have gone that route. I, I don't know what Nelson's swing would have been like, but I'm sure his his banter on the course would, would, would make up for it. Exactly. Exactly. Um yeah, Chris, and 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 I guess to 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 chat quickly about the the golf side, which I'm always fascinated in as well. Um, you've you've recently hosted some uh, a tournament at Royal for for the Sunshine Tour, and you've always been involved in in the PGA and and that side of things. What's your feeling on South African golf at the moment, especially considering we've we've had a nice uptick in the world rankings with our players. We seem to be getting some good traction with the young guys like Wilco and and Garrick and those guys. What's your kind of sentiment and feeling on where things are going in that respect? No, I mean, it's, it's quite incredible the work that the Sunshine Tour does. Um, to develop golfers the way we have developed golfers um, over the last couple of decades 
you know, considering the size of South Africa, it's quite remarkable. You know, it's a bit like New Zealand and their rugby. It's just mind-blowing when you consider the, the amount of people that are in the country. And to see guys like Derek, I mean, he played here when, in March when we had that Kit Kat Pro-Am. And what a great guy. You know, he's, he's so disciplined and organized and he knows what he's going for, you know, but like a lot of golf clubs should be. But, um, yeah, I think the talent that we're producing is, is just beyond expectation, really. Um, I think Derek and, you know, guys like Chris Besedenos, I mean, I remember working at Serengeti Golf Club and he was just a kid on the range, you know, and he was just there all day striping balls. And he's had, I think from a, I think it starts a little bit earlier where the work that Golf RSA are doing and the foundations they're putting in place, the Ernie Els Foundation, um, Louis Foundation down at, down at Pinnacle, I think in my view, that's where these golfers are all coming from. You know, and it's so exciting to see what they're doing. And uh, I think we're going to have quite a few future Ernie Elses in the in the making. Uh, I want to pick your brain on one last question. I was listening to another podcast on the way to work this morning, and it was uh, with uh, with Wilco Ninaba, and it was Mark Immelman's podcast. And he was asking he was asking him what was the toughest thing moving from amateur to to the professional ranks. And funny enough, his answer was the difference between traveling with management and a team versus traveling and being completely isolated on your own. Do you think that is a potential downfall of many a, a talent in, in, in the pro, you know, the guys who show massive promise as amateurs and then move into the pro ranks and then kind of are completely isolated and lose their way as a result? Do you think that's a, a common challenge or do you think it's more specific just to just to him? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I think, you know, you look at a guy like Anton Haig. He had, he had uh, management around him. He had fitness trainers around him. And, um, you know, eventually that support base, even though he had all that support, um, he ended up, you know, with struggles in his career. And um, he's back in South Africa now trying to, trying to rebuild his game. Um, I certainly think that it makes it a bit easier. I mean, you know, Gavin, Gavin Levinson's uh, one of our teaching pros here at Royal, and I love his stories. And, you know, these guys, from the way golf used to be played on tour to the way it is today, it's just changed remarkably. I mean, Brandon Stone doesn't get on an aeroplane unless it's at the front with his fitness coach. And then when he gets there, he lands, he goes and talks to his psychologist. And I think all those things certainly help the guys, but I think in certain cases it can also complicate things. You know, um, I'm not convinced that there's a silver bullet, but I think it's about guys like like Wilco. You know, everybody wants a piece of Wilco at the moment, but I think it's about them also saying, "I need to make sure I've got good balance." Mm. And like anything in life, you know, wellness, fitness, food. Um, too much practice, too little practice. I think you just want to get that good balance, take care of yourself, make sure that you're doing all the right things and not overcomplicating things. Yeah, it's cheap. It's amazing how that principle is true to pretty much everything you do is that that balance between, I mean, you can even take it into the wine space in my, uh, in my family's careers, uh, you know, a, a, a good balanced wine is a, is, is a, is a successful wine, a good balanced career, is a successful career. Um, 
often very difficult to find that balance when when a lot of balls are in the air. Um, but but Chris, yeah, again, I just from my side, it's it's always so inspiring to to listen to you. I think not just your your words and your insight, but I think the conviction and the the uh, authenticity with which you speak is is uh it's it's so inspiring for me and i think inspiring certainly for for the guys who listen to this as well and and lastly i think just to acknowledge the fact that you know it's people like you who in terms of an industry um move the industry in a certain direction and, and in a good direction because as we spoke about earlier to make a change like you have in a club requires a lot of courage and it requires a lot of fortitude you know it's not something which just happens and you know next day carries on it's it requires a lot of bravery so yeah I think I just want to acknowledge that from from I suppose on behalf of the rest of the industry is to say well done and you know it's people like you that that shift things for the better for the long term um so so thank you for your time and and thank you for for your conscious attention it's really really appreciated well, I'm I'm very humbled um, with with your comments there, and um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, we live in the most incredible country, and we need to remain positive, keep our eyes on the horizon, and um, maybe the stuff that's happening around us is happening for a reason, and uh, who knows? I think that that rainbow is going to shine, in my opinion, and um, I also before we leave, I want to say two things. This this podcast has become almost an integral part of the industry now. And I want to congratulate you on this podcast. I, I don't miss an episode and the conversations are incredible. And I'm so chuffed for the traction that it's received and the support that it's received. But I want to set up, I think it's time that the tables turn. And I think we need to set up a small panel where we can interview you, Rob. So I put that challenge to you. Um, I'm going to call on somebody like Dal Hayes and maybe Jeff and the three of us, we can throw some questions your way because as much as, you know, we've really enjoyed um, adding value to the industry and having these chats, you know, the contribution that you're making to this industry um, can't go unnoticed. You, the, the positive impact you're having on clubs and people and inspiring us to be better is is quite remarkable I don't, I don't think there's anybody else actually that is doing what you're doing in the golf space and um yeah i have to compliment you and i can't wait to interview you one of these days well i hope you've got a a nice glass of something uh to enjoy while you do it because i can talk behind the golf donkey you know that <laughs> <laughs> i'm just glad nobody's ever asked me to chip over bunkers yet how to do it <laughs> No idea. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's uh, the, the the interview will have to be complemented by a round on the on that major East Coast of yours. So uh, the two will have to go hand in hand in some way, shape, or form. Absolutely. And um, Rob, if you don't mind, uh, just in closing, obviously, you know, it has been tough times for a lot of people, and um, you know, the ongoing pandemic and the other challenges that we face in South Africa. I just want to say I encourage everybody to stay positive and I'd like to leave you with um, a quote from a person called Jay Danzi, which says, your smile is your logo, your personality is your business card. How you leave others feeling after an experience with you becomes your trademark and forget about the masks and people can't see your smile. Smile, they can feel it. So stay positive and uh, Rob, once again, thank you for having me. 
Um, keep doing what you're doing. And like I said, I can't wait to interview you, China. That's it for today, guys. If this episode brought you value, please do subscribe to the podcast series. And for more information on building your organizational culture, visit us at rcaconsulting.biz. We'll see you in the next episode.